0: Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate.
1: That's central to my notion of what it is to be an art critic, is trying to go deeper to say something. This is going to sound pompous and hubristic but try to say something that matters not just give the reader a tidy little summary of what there is in an exhibition or you know what's normally thought about an artist but really try to give them something new to, to think about try to move the conversation ahead
0: welcome to it's all journalism i'm michael o'connell here with another podcast about digital media and the people who make it Today we're talking about art writing and art criticism with Blake Gopnik. Blake is the critic at large for Artnet News and writes about art and design for the New York Times. He also spent 10 years as the art critic for the Washington Post. Welcome to the podcast, Blake.
1: Hi, lovely to be here, as it were.
0: As it were. Okay, well, and now we kind of met or we sort of crossed paths out of the interview that we had done with John Wilcock, the sort of underground Journalist who, uh, for a time in the nineteen sixties and seventies, hung out with uh, Andy Warhol and actually, uh, you know, helped to start Interview magazine and uh, wrote a biography of him, of Warhol. So, and and you are actually one of the things you're doing now is you're working on a book about Warhol. So, you know, maybe that's that's where that's a good place for us to start. So, you know, tell tell me about the book.
1: Yeah, after twenty years, as or almost twenty years, as a practicing pretty much daily art critic for major publications. I uh, got a contract to write a major book about, or hopefully a major book, about Andy Warhol. It's it's a biography, uh, like other biographies. Hopefully it'll be deeper, more document-based than other biographies have been. I'm trying to tell the truth, and, and lots of truth. But the truth is I'm still... Um, Busy with art criticism, I write a daily column for ArtNet News every day. So I'm still, I still think of myself as an art critic. In fact, the difference, one of the differences between my Warhol book and others that exist, will be that it's very art critical. Mm-hmm. It's very much talking about the life of Andy Warhol, insofar as it illuminates his practice as an artist.
0: And part of his life was a part of his art, the the way he presented himself. Um, and, and the ways people sort of perceive him—you know, the way he communicated, the the people he surrounded himself with—I think that's all sort of the the package of, of Andy Warhol.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's very important to recognize that Andy Andy the persona is one of his creations. But what's extra important is to is to unpack that in interesting and complicated ways. It's very easy to say that people have been saying that since since he emerged on the scene in 1962, 63. But the, the job of any good art writer, I think, is to, is to not just voice that cliche one more time, but to actually try to dig deeper into what that might mean, hopefully give some new elucidation of, um, of how we need to think about what it is to be your own sculpture, as it were. And that's central to my notion of what it is to be an art critic, is trying to go deeper to say something, I and mean, this is going to sound pompous and hubristic, but try to say something that matters. Not just give the reader, you know, a, a, a tidy little summary of what there is in an exhibition or, you know, what's normally thought about an artist, but really try to give them something new to, to think about, try to move the conversation ahead.
0: So art criticism is, is is a bit more than just writing about, oh, there's this new show that's going to be, you know, the gallery. It, it's something more, you think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, art criticism shouldn't be the consumer reports of art. Right. Shouldn't, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't give a thumbs up or thumbs down and tell you, you know, go to the Whitney because it's, you know, it's uh, the cuisine art of, of art right now versus MoMA, which is really a more down-market product or something like that. that. I mean, that's what a lot of art critics spend a lot of their time doing, have always spent a lot of their time doing. But I really believe that art, art criticism, if it's going to matter, if it's going to attract attention – has to be much more ambitious than that. It has to be, you know, to, to the, the cliché about journalism is that it's the first draft of history. Well, I think that art criticism should be the first draft of art history. should matter in that way. should really try to, to say something important about art. We're going to get it wrong on a daily basis. There's no doubt about that, just as normal journalism gets things wrong. But you want to at least try to say something that matters, that, that writes the history of our moment.
0: Okay, so how is you as a as a writer, as a journalist, as a critic? How do you do that? What is it that you you know you you create yourself? You, you you know the skills that you pull together, the the eye that the critical eye that you bring to the work that you do. You know how do you bring all that together?
1: You know, it's Tell easy to say thinking. art history. Sh- <laughs> <laughs> it's easier to say art history should be more ambitious. Uh, art historians should be should be great thinkers and great. Uh, sorry. Let me start that again, okay. it, because I, I misspoke. Um, it's easy to say that art critics should be more ambitious, that they should be great art historians on top of everything else, but that, of course, is, is hard, and I can't say that I've done it myself. I like to imagine that I've done it once or twice out of the thousands and thousands of pieces I've written, uh, but maybe I haven't even done that. But I, at least I think the ambition should be there. I think that art historians should be a little bit like more like science. Uh, I think that art critics, rather, should be a little bit more like science journalists. Um, we should be some kind of intermediary between the smartest people who talk about art, the smartest writings of serious art historians, and the general public. That's, I think, an unusual model for our criticism, but it's one I, I like. There are people who spend their entire lives trying to figure out the smartest possible thing to say about a work of art. Those people are paid good money in universities and they're called art historians. And it seems a mistake for art critics to ignore them. Even if contempt for them, a lot of my colleagues, even colleagues I admire deeply, have a kind of ingrown, ingrained contempt for art history, for academia. But those people really are responsible for moving the conversation forward. That is those people meaning academic art historians. They get it wrong. They can be unbelievably boring. They can be pompous, they can be obscure. But in the long run, they're the people who are moving forward. And I think that art critics have to acknowledge that, figure out what art historians are saying that matters and and try to communicate that to to the general reader.
0: So do you see the art historian then as more the institution and and you as more of the, for lack of a better word, the man on the street, the one who is the intermediary between that, you know, the the deeper well of of art history and, and the public?
1: way, except for a couple of things. First of all, you don't want to be the intermediary between the general public and an art history that's been dead for 50 or 100 years. Mm -hmm. That's what too much of art criticism turns out to be. It turns out to just spew cliches. I mean, if I read another art critic talking about, you know, the eternal verities of the human condition, or, you know... um, that art has to speak to all of humanity at all times, I'm uh, frankly going to puke. I mean, those kind of clichés have been around for way too long. we got to get rid of them. And they're still very prevalent. The timelessness of art is something that shouldn't... The word timeless should be removed from the processor of any art critic because it, it doesn't exist And no serious... Thinker about art would still would still entertain it, but art critics do.
0: Yeah, it seems one of those things that, that very easily can uh, that there are cliches that that immediately pop to mind as, as people try to, to to raise the importance of of the art that they're they're trying to relate or describe. But tell me about you know y- your experience you know coming an art critic, becoming a, a, a an art journalist. Was it the art first? Was it the journalism, the writing first for you?
1: it's easy for me to praise art history and probably not correct for me to praise art history because I started life as an art historian. I got my PhD in art history and in kind of 16th century art history with a dose of philosophy and psychology thrown in as well. So, And then I really ended up as an art critic by accident. The chief critic at the Globe and Mail in Toronto went on holiday to do some extra writing. He, he was also a book author. And I was there. I was ready. I had my, pen, my pencil sharpened and um, was ready to replace him for the summer. And then he got a different job and left. And there I was, left, as it were, holding the bag at Canada's major major national newspaper as, as their art critic. So I really ended up in art criticism mostly by accident. But I'm glad that I had my foundation in art history first, because it did, even though I've never been able to practice really properly as an art historian, it did set me up. It did. Give me a notion of what kinds of kinds of approaches serious art history has, and then for twenty years I've simply been writing vast, vast quantities of um, of art criticism at, at various publications that demanded you know a piece, two pieces, three pieces, or right now five pieces a week.
0: For the the writing that you're doing now, you know, what is it? You know, as you're writing these things, who are you speaking to? Do you think
1: that's always a hard, hard problem? <laughs> possibly no one but the person <laughs> I imagine speaking to yes. is um someone who cares about art to begin with who would like to care about art maybe that's a better way of putting it but doesn't necessarily quite have the tools to think about art as deeply as i would like to but I'd also like to imagine if I'm doing my job properly by my own definition of doing the job properly that I'm speaking to the most sophisticated readers I'd like to hope that I'm uh, giving them something to, to chew on. Just um, today I published a piece on a work by William Pope L. at the Whitney Biennial, and I was comparing it to a 1972 feminist work of art called Woman House, and it all of a sudden struck me that the parallel between this 1972 feminist piece and this, and this 2017 piece by a, an artist known for black activism, that there were links between them. And I hope that, that those links, mentioning those links, is something that can be useful to anyone who has even a, a passing interest in art. Trying to, you know, to to wake people up, to say, hey, look, think about this in a new way. That's for me, is what art criticism is all about. And that should be relevant to an audience, you know, to any kind of audience from the most specialized to the most general.
0: Yeah, and people, you know, reporters who have beats, regular beats, who, who write a certain type of... Uh you know, cover a certain type of thing where they, you know, develop resources. They they sort of get you know, cue into, you know, I don't know if you're a sports writer, you're going to know who all the sports teams are and all the coaches and the players and everything. And I would imagine in your realm that you you're, you're sort of cued into similar sort of things: the galleries, the the shows, the art, the the artists that that people are talking about. And you know, how much of your beat is just sort of keeping track of that and just, you know, picking and choosing what you think is what you want to cover.
1: You know, that's, that's a very important point. A big element in any art critic's work involves simply pointing to things, what philosophers would call abstention. Half of what you're doing is simply saying, hey, f- hey, folks, look at this. Maybe I'm dumb about it, maybe I'm smart about it, but this is something that I think is at least worth worth noticing. So a lot of what you're doing is simply going to see an unbelievable amount of art and Luckily or unluckily for me, having five columns to write a week does force me to force me to look at vast amounts of art. Because to write five columns, you've got to see 25 columns worth of art before you find enough to write about. And in a, in a sense, I'm going to the galleries so my readers don't have to. Or rather, I'm going <laughs> to the bad galleries so my readers don't have to. But I'm really glad you brought up sports writers and business journalists and other kinds of journalists. Because it really matters to me that everyone realizes that every journalist speaks to a certain extent to specialist readers. You know, you don't explain a touchdown when you're writing about football. Is that right? Or is that Yeah. Right? No, yeah. definitely football. Football. Thank you. Here, I'm, I'm playing art critic here. I do know the difference just vaguely. There, thanks. We got sports out of the way. So I don't think it's unreasonable to imagine that readers of art criticism will have some basic background, that, there's, that you're allowed to imagine a tiny little bit of specialization from your readers. And that, for some reason, gets people annoyed at art criticism, when art criticism isn't utterly transparent. But I think it's, you know, there is no journalism. There's very little journalism that's totally transparent to every reader. I mean, imagine someone Icelandic reading about the electoral college system and the New York Times. Um, You just can't imagine every reader will understand every single word in every piece, and you have to imagine some kind of specialization. But for me, it's very important to insist that art criticism is real journalism in the sense that art criticism, or rather criticism of any of the arts, is the hard news of, of the arts, of culture, right? It tells you what happened. Yesterday, there was a ballet performance. This week, there's an art exhibition. Here's what's in it. Here's what to think about it. That's the hard news. Stories about the director of the Metropolitan Museum resigning, or a major theft, or the sale of a silly Warhol painting for $100 million, that's all soft news. That's not about the arts. That's not about art. The real news is the criticism. And we somehow managed to reverse our way of thinking about it, so that newspapers Journalism in general tends to think that the hard news story is the theft, is the auction report, and the soft news is the criticism. And I really want to fight against
0: that. Does it bother you that, that a lot of people's perception, or when they think about art, they only sort of think about the value of, of something in a monetary sense? They don't, they're not necessarily looking at the art itself and the, the value that's beyond just the, the money that's assigned to it?
1: Yeah, of course it, it you know, it, it pisses me off and I'm often pissed off on the page about our insane attention to, to price, which is fairly recent. You know, we, we haven't always cared as much about price as we have about art. But it's also normal. I mean, the, the most important thing about art and the thing that I try to communicate when I'm writing is that art is incredibly difficult stuff, that good art is utterly demanding. I mean, when I've seen a good show or even sometimes just a good couple of works I come away totally exhausted from the experience of trying to figure this stuff out. I mean, what is it they say that the brain uses Is it 20% of our calories, 50% of our calories? Mm -hmm. Maybe that's why looking at art is so difficult, because it demands constant brain work. And it's not surprising that people would prefer something easier. We all know how to talk about money. Not intelligently, but we all know how to talk about it. So we're always going to be replacing the real hard work of talking about art with the ease of talking about money or thefts or forgeries. We do a bad job even of talking about those things when it comes to art, but we do a really bad job of talking about art itself because it's just too difficult to do.
0: Yeah, I, I remember reading a, a, an article um, by Roger Ebert talking about you know, his job as a as a, as a movie critic, and you know, everybody's like, oh, it's great, you can see movies all the time. And he's like, well... I see a lot of movies all the time. I see almost too many movies. And, and so much of, the, of what I see is, is not worth my time, is, is just not interesting. So that's why when you know, he comes upon something that's you know, extraordinary, that you know, he, you know, whether it's extraordinarily bad or extra nor, extraordinarily great, it's something that sort of inspires him to write. Do you find that, that there's a lot of stuff that you look at that you just want to just sort of get through so you could find those things that jump out at you?
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the elements of good fortune I have as an art critic, rather than a movie or theater critic, is that I can walk out of a gallery after about seven seconds. Or in fact, I love it when galleries have big picture windows, because I can look in and realize, oh, no, that's precisely the, the kind of art I don't like, or, oh, wow, that's totally derivative where I've seen exactly that, that kind of picture before, and i can I can leave so i can I can see twenty shows in an afternoon. obviously a, a movie critic can't. Although I have to say that as a Warhol biographer, I have sat through all oh seven and a half hours of of Empire of his movie about the Empire State Building, and all what is it, five hours of his his movie of his boyfriend sleeping. So I, I have done some some hard time with movies. A hard but luckily, time. only with good movies, not with bad ones.
0: Oh my God! Yeah. Uh, so, so tell me about Warhol. You say you've been working on this for twenty years. I mean, what is what has that that experience been like to to have that focus and to dig so deep into that?
1: If I said I was working on Warhol for twenty years, oh, I misspoke. I've been an art critic for twenty. Oh, I'm sorry. Been working on Warhol for three or four. That's um, still although, a long time. I mean, even and it, the the reason. I began a biography of Warhol is because over the course of 20 years, I've written quite a lot about him, as any art critic would have ended up doing, and probably more than some art critics. I've always always respected Warhol and and tried to take him very, very seriously. But, you know, Warhol is, you know, even people who hate Warhol, and some of my my closest friends and colleagues in art criticism hate a lot of his work, have to acknowledge the vast impact he's had on art making and on the culture as a whole. You know, I've, I've now dug unbelievably deeply into him. My database of Warholian documents now is over 20,000. Wow. I'm literally, almost literally drowning in Warhol. And every single day, I discover something new about him that blows me away. I discover some new evidence for his utter brilliance. And I don't just mean that kind of metaphorically. He was actually an incredibly intelligent person, a person of real depth and complication you know, just a, an artist with a, with a fathomless interest in strangeness. So I, I have to say I haven't become tired of him yet. I wish that all the artists I wrote, at, wrote about as an art critic were as, as rewarding. You know, he made a lot of bad art, but he made so much good art that the bad art doesn't matter. And I even, this may be kind of Ptolemaic saving of the phenomena, but I even think that his bad art is a component in his larger goodness as it were, that he needed to make the bad art because he was interested in bad art as a phenomenon. Um, He was interested in shit that sells. And you can't really be interested in shit that sells unless you're making a whole lot of shit that sells.
0: Yeah. So so by, by volume, at least, he's moving himself forward, good and bad. So, and it's fortunate that that as you dug, as you dug deeper, as you dig deeper into into his work, that you're, you're you're seeing so much more. It would be so terrible to put the time and the effort in, and and suddenly discover there's nothing there, or that it's somehow not as enriching. So then, you know, the the story you get to tell then is is so much better.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are moments. Especially in the 70s and 80s, where I, I just can't stand this guy. I mean, he was—he was a certain kind of social climber, though he himself hated having that word applied to him. You know, he had his superficialities. He cared about British titles and American wealth, but he was also, at the same time, always brilliant. And I'd even argue that his interest in British titles and American wealth allowed him to make all sorts of very strange art about those two phenomena that no one else could have made. So even his failures and foibles seemed to me to, to fuel his art.
0: He was just a guy from Pittsburgh in the end.
1: Uh, well, no. In what? fact, that's one of the things I've discovered. Oh. He was Yes, he was a guy from Pittsburgh. But being a guy from Pittsburgh in the 1940s was an incredibly lucky thing to be if you wanted to be an artist. He got an amazing education at Carnegie Institute of Technology, now Carnegie Mellon University. And was exposed to the most advanced avant-garde art there at Carnegie Tech, but also at a gallery called Outlines Gallery in Pittsburgh. So in fact, this kind shucks of, kind of character that we all know, this guy who scratches his blonde wig and says, I don't know, was in fact a very sophisticated thinker who just hit it, hit his light under a barrel. Because after all, if you seem stupid, uh, no one's going to attack you for being stupid. They'll just be surprised when you turn
0: out to be smart. One of the things when I was uh, preparing for this interview is I, I checked out a, a number of um, YouTube videos that that you've done in, over the years, some of which were you you did with the Post and and other uh, publications. Uh, the Daily Beast, I think, was one of them. And I found it really fascinating where you're you're presenting. You know, in two or three minutes, uh, you're you're talking about a piece of art, or you're talking about you know, an artist, you know, maybe an artist who, who'd recently died and their, perce- you know, how people perceive them. And it's really accessible. And, you know, because they're so brief, it, it gives you sort of a taste of, you know, art criticism and sort of the depth that you can have, with something that you don't, you know, you may appreciate art, you know, in sort of a, a wide sphere, but you may not know a particular artist or, or can appreciate their works. But just being able in a few minutes of video or audio that you can sort of make that connection. Do you like, you know, having that, uh, you know, that ability to, to speak to people in video and, and <laughs> video and handle online?
1: It's yeah, t- I mean, the thing I love about video and and especially about the videos I did with another art critic, um, Christian Viveres-Faunet, where we're either the Siskel-Niebert or the Laurel and Hardy of, of art criticism, uh, what I particularly like is trying to convey the excitement I have, any good critic has, when they're face-to-face with a work of art. I mean, the, the great thing about art is not that it speaks eternal truth or that it, it's beautiful or sublime or any of those things. What matters to me about art is that it gets you thinking. It gets you responding. It triggers stuff. And if it's not triggering stuff or you're not susceptible to having stuff triggering you something is wrong and it's that excitement the sparks that fly when you're really encountering work of art that matters more than anything to me and the great thing about video is that it lets viewers watch that happen so I don't care if they come away with specific facts about the work I don't care if they come away with with uh, my analysis or even my thumbs up or thumbs down what I really want them to come away with from the video is just a vision of what it is for someone who loves art and who spent a lot of time loving art and um, what it is for that person to encounter a work of art because that's what's so hard for many people. They don't have those fundamental tools or they don't have the fundamental self-confidence to say, I'm just going to talk back to this art. I'm going to see what it does to me. I'm going to think about it and think new and think yet another new thought. I mean, I have a little aphorism that I like to trot out. and I trot out too often, I'm sure, which is that art is a machine for thinking, it triggers stuff in your brain. And that's what video, I think, allows me to show to my, to my viewers. And that's, that's why I love those three-minute, four-minute, 5 minutes videos. Because whatever else they do, they, I hope, show my enthusiasm, show me or me and someone else reacting to works of art. And that's, that's really what art is all about. I, I'm saddened by seeing so many people in museums to no fault of their own, coming in and clearly just not knowing what to do, just wandering fairly aimlessly, not having the tools to to talk back to the art and let it talk back to them, and that those tools, those most fundamental set of tools, is what I think art critics need to give to their to their readers and their viewers.
0: Yeah, the, the one video that I that I'm thinking of that that you and the other uh, critic did. Well, there were two. There was one where you were you spent an hour in front of uh, Jackson Pollock painting, uh, which was edited down to five minutes, which I thought was really cool. And then, but there's this other one. It was a show. There were sort of like um, wooden, like objects, desks, cameras, and things like that. But then there was this one that was a room, and it was it was supposed to be room inside a frame, and it was at, at an airport.
1: Was at the TSA's so exactly. the screening. Exactly facilities at an airport. Yeah. I yeah. was completely in wood, Um, this crazy perspectival l'oeil wood where you're looking at quite a shallow scene, but you think you're looking at an entire right. TSA facility.
0: Yeah. No, and it was pretty fascinating. And it was there were things in the video that I, that I wouldn't have picked up. I, you know, I may not even have picked them up if I had been in the gallery and walking by and looking at it. The, the fact that it was within a frame, that it was at once a a photo and a, and but then also a sculpture, and that the sculptures weren't, you know, I want to say, one hundred percent accurate. they were they were all designed in perspective, so that they were they gave the impression that they were, they were a photograph or they were a painting that, that was done drawn to present a particular perspective. But as you moved around it, nothing sort of seemed to line up correctly.
1: all so got crazy skew as you move from side to side.
0: yeah, so so suddenly the the very still artwork begins to change. And there was another one that you did. I remember for the post that was a sculpture that was in the rotunda at one of the art museums. and it was a it was a cloud and it was actually like I, I guess gels. Like plastic gels, which, which light could go through, and it was made up into a cloud of the, these pieces of plastic. And the the experience was not so much about looking at that, but actually having the light come through it and having how the light interacted with the person. So it was a, sort of a different way to interact with with the artwork.
1: That's by Spencer Finch, who's one of my favorite artists. He he's the only artist in the nine um, eleven Memorial Museum. He's got a huge piece there. So he's someone who's certainly getting some recognition these days. I think one of the great great artistic poets of our time.
0: For me, you know, I, I, I enjoy art. I, I'm not an expert, but I like to experience it. I like to look at it and try to, to understand it as I view it and experience it. But, you know, art criticism helps me to, you know, just do, do what I was describing, seeing things and just having those reference points so that I can go, oh, yes, okay, now, and then it allows me, it sort of opens up my ability to view things differently, I guess.
1: It dif- differently is the crucial word for me because... The so one thing I don't want to do as a critic, and of course I've been guilty of doing it, I'm sure, is just you know feed you the obvious lines about a work of art so you go away saying, "Oh yeah, this is about you know again the timeless verities of the human condition," or this is about you know I don't know uh, beauty or any of those kind of cliches. I think an art critic has a duty to say things that, that are new, that matter that would matter to anyone looking. That is, I don't want art critics to be condescending and say, well these cliches are are good enough for, for Joe Blow. I think we have a duty to say important things, as art critics used to do. I mean what art historians do a lot of the time is say, Well let's look at these sixteenth century art critics or let's look at these art critics from the nineteen fifties to figure out what what this art is all about. Well I want to be that The art critic of the 21st century, helping future art historians figure out what's interesting to say about a work of art. I don't just want to reiterate what's been said before, because that's, in a sense, easier for a general audience maybe to pick up on. I I think, you know, the truth is someone who knows nothing about art doesn't mind if they get old cliches or new fascinating statements. Might as well give them something new because they won't even know that they're getting something new, right? There's no downside to trying to say something really exciting and new and moving the conversation forward because the general reader, general viewer, won't know the difference. They won't object to having new information or new insights because they don't know the old ones anyway.
0: But the important thing in that is that the people who who have the ability to hear it and will be cued in by those, you know, those messages, they're going to be able to pick that up and they'll be able to use that.
1: That's what one hopes, yeah. That, you know, I mean, it'd be pretty sad, and this is, I'm afraid, almost constantly the case in art criticism today. It'd be pretty sad if art criticism meant nothing to the people who cared most about art, and only, only a little bit to the people who know nothing about art. I mean, that, that would be such a lack of ambition that it's almost scary to contemplate, but I'm afraid that's the sort of normal condition for art criticism today. It's hard to imagine a film critic setting their sights quite so low, let alone a sports writer, right? I mean, a a really good sports writer, and there are are quite a few of them out there, really want to say interesting, smart things about the latest play in, in soccer or football or baseball. They want to try to move the conversation forward. Why wouldn't our critics want to do the same thing?
0: Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. Blake, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, when can we expect the forthcoming book?
1: Definitely before the year 2100. Uh, I OK, you, I can promise you that. No, in within a year or two.
0: OK, cool, cool. And, and people can find your work where?
1: Well, almost everything I do appears in one form or another at BlakeGothnick.com or at least there's a link to everything I do in BlakeGothnick.com, even my um my New York Times pieces have links to them from, from there. So that's, that's the clearinghouse for, for everything Blake Gottnick does, for better or worse.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much. This has been great. Thank you, Michael. Next time on It's All Journalism.
1: I think ultimately the the internet is a pretty messy place. When it comes to trolling, you can't get rid of them altogether. you got to find ways to cultivate community without feeding. The nasty, and I think the number one way is to incentivize community leaders and the community itself to have a presence and a voice to set the tone. So it's not just the author of the article or the um, the moderator of this community, you know, constantly acting as a referee, but setting good tone so that you have all the contributors helping. You have a whole atmosphere of of positivity where you're not allowing folks to do that harassment.
0: In our next podcast, we talk to Daniel Ha. CEO and co-founder of the Discus commenting platform. We discuss how online publishers can take control of their comment boards as a way to create better reader engagement. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco, Amber Healy provided our web content, Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, I've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a down and dirty guide to podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more, and we'll send you a cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.
1: The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's
0: innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed.
1: The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, onecom or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C. The Target USA podcast with your host, J.J. Green. Russia could render a huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. That could touch the whole of
0: the United States.
1: ISIS. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to see an attack. This is J.J. Green. Join me each week for the latest on U.S. and international security on Target USA. The Target USA podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, onecom or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.